tonight. We are in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, you can uh, go there if you're not there already. Colossians 1, and uh, this, as, yes, as Pastor Nathan said, this passage is one of the most pivotal, I think, in all of the scriptures. Uh, this, along with the, uh, a similar passage in terms of how it talks about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, uh, are often called uh, Christ's songs, uh, really Paul's Christ hymns, perhaps you could call them that, in which they are lofty uh, exaltations of Jesus Christ and what he has done, uh, going through all of the different things that uh, we ascribe to the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingship, his, uh, his being the savior, his being the redeemer, the deliverer, the one who is Lord over all things. Uh, and even we get a lot of theology and doctrine from these passages, uh, especially just the fact that uh, where it says that he, uh, in him all things consist, all these ideas and uh, beliefs and truths that we hold to, the fact that he is part of the Trinity, he is, uh, uh, he is God, Jesus Christ is God, all those wonderful truths that we claim to they come out of a lot of 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 these passages like this um but this evening i want to talk to you uh, as you can see on the slide behind me the power of grace in the life of every disciple because i think what we have here of course among many other things as pastor nathan said 37 sermons worth or or so is uh, a really clear articulation of the gospel of grace one of the things that you have no doubt learned about me over the last I don't know how long have I been here, a uh, year or so, <laughs> uh, is, is the fact that my favorite Bible word, so to speak, is uh, the word grace. Uh, it's one that it, I don't just say it because I like it. I say it because I really mean it. It is one that is true to my heart. It is true to uh, my life. I am not here but by God's grace, and I cling to it so closely because I know how desperately uh, I need it. Uh, that's why uh, everything that I strive to do and speak and write about is about this grace of God. My favorite verse in the scriptures is John 1.16, where it talks about how the Lord's ministry to us is one of grace upon grace. Literally, if you look up the words there, it's the grace of God heaped upon more grace, and that's his disposition towards us. To be sure, though, um, I'm familiar with this, that when you talk about grace a lot, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions that often arise in terms of what are you really talking about? How are you uh, focusing so much on this thing called grace because isn't that giving people a license to sin? And isn't that allowing people to just do whatever they want and live willy-nilly because, of course, grace is here and alive? This, of course, isn't a new conclusion people have come to. It's one that has been uh, within the church for centuries, for ages. It has been uh, sort of man's heart to resist sort of preaching on the Lord's grace because it seems too free. It seems too good to be true in a lot of ways. Uh, from the earliest days of the first apostles' ministries, in fact, this was happening. You can see this in Paul's writing. There were many people misconstruing, misunderstanding his message of salvation by grace through Christ. And they were living as they wanted to. They were living as they pleased. And it's this sort of division, this misunderstanding of what the grace of God is can often be seen and identified in two different ways. One way, you have it very clearly seen in the audience of the letter to James. Now on Sunday mornings here, I'll give a commercial for Sunday school for Matt Shively and Matt Kersey. At 9 a.m., Matt Shively and Matt Kersey are tag team preaching, teaching through James's letter in the New Testament. And I love this letter. 
Because often you read it and you're made to see very clearly, as we just talked about in, the, in this morning's class, salvation is not by faith, it's by works. <laughs> and that shocks us, it stuns us. <laughs> I'm not going to try and steal Matt Kersey's thunder. He's not here, so he can't, he can't get mad at me. Um, but anyways... Uh, what he's talking about there is, is a really specific uh, uh, setting because you, uh, James's audience was an audience who determined that because of this saving power of grace in Christ, the requirements for godly living were no longer applicable. They were no longer valid. They could literally just sit on their hands and do and live as they pleased and do as they wanted to because it didn't matter. They didn't have to evidence their faith by works of love or deference or mercy for your neighbor. You have to understand what James was doing was not sort of attacking salvation by grace. He was actually attacking through this letter a church that was just trying to say, I believe in something without actually letting that belief influence their life, affect how they lived. On the opposite side of that, you have the book of Galatians. Which is sort of uh, the same sort of gospel articulated for a different audience. Because again, the audience of Galatians, and I'm jumping around and I'll come back to Colossians, I promise. But the audience of Galatians was an audience who were deceived into believing that they had to do something additional to their salvation by grace. Namely, circumcision, which is sort of a stand-in sort of metaphor that they had to add to their faith the law. You see then, you have the truth very clearly articulated that it wasn't just grace alone, it was grace plus something else. They were being deceived into believing that the, that the, that the cross of Christ wasn't sufficient enough. It wasn't powerful enough. And in that way, it made the cross of none effect. Paul writes about this. Actually, let me just read those verses because I love how blunt Paul is. <laughs> Galatians chapter 3, he's writing to them. He's reminding the Galatian Christians that this whole thing, this whole life is one of grace. Yes, how you live after you're saved, your initial point of salvation, the, everything, all of it, every bit of it. And he goes in Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. He's trying to stir them and shake them up and remind them. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Verse 3, are ye so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? See, what he's articulating here is this, he's attacking that notion. That they are, yes, perhaps saved by faith. But what keeps them, what keeps them saved, what keeps them a disciple is what they do, is what they accomplish, their works. Yeah, very clearly, this same gospel being misunderstood in two very drastic different ways. That they had to add something. That they had to do something to make this faith genuine or real. And I think these are often the two extremes that often materialize when you preach this sort of message. You have faith that doesn't want to do anything versus a faith that tries to do too much. 
And often I think the human heart is actually a little bit more given to the faith that wants to do too much. <laughs> we want to be responsible and in control and, and in, in the sort of captain seat of our own faith. That's what we desire. It just, that's the human nature in us. But often, if you misconceive grace in these two sorts of ways, you're going to vacillate between these two extremes. Faith that doesn't want to do anything, or faith that tries to do too much. And, and I think that uh, that's where we often are. Even if we don't want to admit it. We often live like the Galatians. Who are fearful of what grace might do if we just unleash it. And so we have to put caveats on it and qualifiers on it. And we have to make sure it it stays under the law. As Paul elsewhere says that the law is now no longer a schoolmaster. It doesn't lord over us. So really what I aim to do tonight is just kind of briefly show you. What the... What the grace of God has the power to do. To remind you of it. A power that I would say is far greater than you could ever hope or imagine. It's one that I think we don't often just let ourselves sit in. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing those words without even letting them sink into our souls and seep into our minds and our hearts. And letting them really let us sit and know what that means. Amazing grace, is that a sweet sound to your ears? Well, I want to remind you of that tonight. In three short lessons tonight, in, in some of the later verses in Colossians, Colossians and Colossians, Colossians chapter one, excuse me, Colossians one, look at verse 20 again. Here is our first lesson. Grace's power in redemption, the power of grace in redemption. Look at verse 20 and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Here, we have to begin where Paul always begins. If you go throughout all of Paul's letters, you will notice that he always starts at this point. He starts in all of the wretchedness and badness of the people that he was addressing. And every single letter, regardless if he's addressing someone that he is familiar with or addressing a church or regardless, he is always starts out by addressing their awful sin. Notice he says in verse 21, you that were sometime alienated and enemies. And remember, Paul is addressing a church. How would you like it if every single uh, time you were given a letter, you were reminded of, of what you were in your former life? It would stir you, it would shake you. And here Paul is, is, is doing the same sort of thing. Getting their attention by reminding them of what they have been saved from. You were alienated, you were enemies. They were in love, as it says there, enemies in your mind by wicked works. You were, they were literally in love with wickedness. It was defining their lives. They were shut out from fellowship, from relationship with God. Hateful of everything that pertained to God. 
This is what you were, Paul reminds them. This is who you were before Jesus. This portrait of this, of this church before Christ came into their lives is not a pretty sight. Sin never is. And I think the point is here really well made. Do not downplay this part. Don't downplay that from which you were saved from. Because to the degree that you downplay your sin is the same degree that you will devalue the grace of God in your life. If you think that your sin is not so bad, then the grace of God will not mean as much to you. I wasn't saved from an addiction. I grew up in church. <laughs> I, I can relate to this. As I said a couple Sundays ago, I'm a third generation pastor. <laughs> my grandfather was a pastor. My dad's a pastor. I'm a pastor. I've always been in church. It's defined my life. <laughs> I didn't get saved though until I was 16. Why? Because I didn't really think I was a sinner. I preached sermons before I was saved. That's how good I was at articulating the scriptures. <laughs> I didn't need this. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm saved. Until you understand that this description that Paul gives of this church is you. The grace of God will not be meaningful to you. He says that you were alienated. You were enemies. Put yourself in this verse. And you, Pastor Brad, you, Pastor Nathan, you, Natalie, were sometime alienated. You were enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled you. This is a description of us. It's a reminder of the great lengths that grace went to to bring us out of the pits of darkness and despair and sin. It's a description of everyone who has ever lived. He's reminding this church right off the bat that if left to themselves, God should have had nothing to do with them. You have to realize that. We don't deserve any of this. <laughs> We don't deserve any of the blessings that we enjoy on a daily basis. This is all by grace. By rights, God should have had nothing to do with this world. Because of sin, he could have been completely just and just letting it spin and burn into oblivion. Because they had rebelled against him, rejected their creator. We had rejected it and alienated ourselves, despising the goodness that he had given to us and his sovereignty. And yet despite all of that, despite all of that against us, God did not cast us off. He didn't let our world just spin off his axis and go into oblivion. Actually, even more remarkably, he chose in grace to become part of this world. He chose to enter into this rebellious realm in order to redeem it. That's the power of grace. That redeems, that reaches into the place where aliens and enemies are and chooses to save them. And to, chooses to restore all things. 
Notice verse 15, Colossians 1, where it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the church, of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. This is the ministry of Jesus to us. A ministry that we didn't deserve. It's a ministry that God took up the initiative all in himself. The God who spoke and created all things becomes a part of his creation in order that he might die for all things and therefore redeem and restore all things. This is the grace of God in redemption. Redeeming aliens and enemies and making them sons and daughters. And by what? Verse 14, again, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The power of grace in redemption is most clearly seen in that. That the God who sustains all things comes and puts himself on a cross. Puts himself on a tree that he spoke into existence (laughs) to die for humanity. And now we are his family. Look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 2. Colossians 2.13 And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. This is what he's done. All that was against you, all that was sort of nailing you to an eternity in hell, he nailed to the cross and he blotted it out by his blood that was shed for you. This is the redemptive mission and plan of God. And it's fueled and it's ran on his grace, which saves Enemies, those who were against him, those who were spitting on him. I always think of that image. The image of Jesus hanging on the tree with nails through his palms and through his feet as blood is streaming down. And those who are going by him are spitting on him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As we there, as we, our representatives, were essentially crucifying their Savior, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about forgiveness. <laughs> That's the type of God that we have. Who is adamantly, uh, his mission is adamant about redemption. Restoring all things, reconciling all, as he says here, all things to himself. And notice that this 
power of grace is more immeasurable than you could imagine. Go back to verse 20. It says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Notice, he's saying all things. Not just your life. It's all things. Not just the sins that you can think of. There is actually no sin that you or I could imagine that is more powerful than this blood of redemption. He reconciles all things to himself. This is the grace of God. And the power to redeem you. To bring you out of rebellion and into redemption. Which leads me to my second point. We have the power of grace in redemption. Now we have the power of grace through restoration. Because look at verse 22. It says, in the body of his flesh. Or I'll read verse 21. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You see here, this is the wonderful part of the grace of God. That it doesn't just redeem us and leave us there. It restores us into right fellowship with the Father. That because of this redemption, he is, Paul is here reminding the Colossian church that they are, are being restored. Are being made holy and unblameable and unreprovable. Their records are being cleaned. All of the sin and wretchedness that had been staining their resumes, so to speak, were being washed away by the blood of Christ, the Lamb. And he says specifically, notice there in verse 22, that they are being presented to present you holy. There is much, I think, in that word present. There's much there that we could spend a lot of time on. It comes from a Greek word. Meaning to stand by or to present a person for another to see and question. If you think about it, that is an awful image. Jesus presenting us to the Father for him to see and question us. Question whether we are holy or unreprovable or blameless. Think about your life. Is that an event that you would want to be a part of? By yourself, would you want to be presented to the God and the creator of all things? To question and check whether you had holiness or blamelessness or faultlessness. (laughs) I can very well tell you, I don't want any part of that. I would be resisting going into that courtroom. I don't want to be presented to the Father because I know what 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 the verdict would be. I would be guilty. So you have this incredible picture, though, that Jesus, the one who is presenting us, is the one who is standing by us. We are being examined by the Father. And guess what? By grace, we are found holy and blameless. Why? Because Jesus is the one who is standing with us, standing by us. So his examination of holiness becomes ours. 
This is how we are restored. I think of the Colossians chapter 3, verses, verse 3, where it says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This is what's happening. When we are presented by Jesus to the Father, he hides us in his shadow. Therefore, when we are seen, Jesus is seen. He becomes what we are restored by, how we are restored. By, with, by Christ and with Christ. That's where our holiness comes from. Not by what we aliens and enemies of God can do, but because Jesus is standing there with us. Standing there by us, standing there over us. Which again goes back to inform a lot of those misconceptions about the grace of God that we have in our lives. It informs, to use big theological words, our justification and our sanctification. So in justification is that act whereby we are declared righteous before God. As a judge who hammers a gavel and declares a verdict over over someone that's in that courtroom. You can imagine that this justification that we have in Jesus is the gavel being declared on our life. And it's not what we expect because by grace it is righteous. Why is that so? Because we are presented by Christ. We are brought before the judge by the Savior. And we are seen as righteous because of who we are being presented by and with. It's because of the one who is bringing us there into that room. So in justification, this is a once done declaration of holiness. The record is there. As he says in Colossians 2, the record was blotted out. Your inconsolable sinful record was blotted out by the handwriting on the cross. And in its stead was Jesus' holy, blameless record put there for you. That's justification. You're secure in that. You can be free and joyful in that. But it not only just informs that, it informs your sanctification. The process by which we are made holy. The process by which we are conformed into the image of Christ himself. Because, as it says elsewhere, look at verse 22 again. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Look over in chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is to point us always and ever back to the blamelessness and the holiness of Christ himself. This is the sum and substance of the Spirit's ministry to us. He points us to Jesus to make us like Jesus. This is the power of grace to restore all things. 
Notice verse 13 of chapter 1 where it says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated, or as Pastor Nathan read, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. We have changed citizenship. We are no longer citizens and under the power of darkness. But because of this grace of redemption, we are now restored into a right relationship with the Father. And now we are no longer under the power of darkness. We are under the ministry of light. Under the the captainship, under the sovereignty, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the king and creator and savior of all things. This is the power of grace and restoration. Restores enemies. Enemies who wanted nothing to do with God and makes them holy by the blood of his cross. Again, we could, uh, there's so much that we could say about that, but I want to hasten on to the last point. Number three, we have the grace, the power of grace and redemption, the power of grace and restoration, but lastly, the power of grace in resolution. Because look at verse 23. It says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Here. Paul talks about being resolved. Resolved to continue in this grace through faith. Which makes him grounded and settled or steadfast. This I think is the conclusion that Paul had come to for his entire life. That because of this power of grace that had redeemed and rescued him and pulled him out of that power of darkness and it restored him and yes made him from a terrorist to the church to a preacher in the church. Now Paul, he, as he says there, am a minister. Whereof, he says, verse 25, where have I made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God? He has resolved to live forever by the power of this grace, which defined his entire life. It was the sweet sound that was Paul's song that redeemed him and restored him and resolved his life. It grounded him, as he says there in verse 23, grounded and settled. You know, there's not much in our lives that I think that we could classify as grounded and settled. <laughs> there's a lot that changes. A lot that fluctuate. Things that we rely on that to be there tomorrow often are not there for long. This life is defined by change. It's something that we're going to look at extensively in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> this life under the sun... It's transient. It's fleeting. Like a breath in winter that's gone. The vapor is there and then it dissipates. That's not this grace. That's not what this good news is for you and I. This is Paul's point. 
that the only solid and certain thing that we have in this whole entire life is this gospel of grace, of the reconciliation of all things back to God. And therefore we are made to continue in that. As he says, continue in the faith. Be not moved from it. Because this is the only sure thing that we have in this life. This is the only steadfast ground that we have. Christ's grace. It's what is the, it's the solid thing when everything else is giving way and crumbling around us. When everything is dark and scary. And yes, it persists to lead us to a point of despair. This grace of God is what we can rely on when everything else seems to fall apart. Let me read you this paragraph from Alexander McLaren. He's one of my favorite preachers. He was very popular in the late 1800s. A Scottish preacher. And he says this. If we are not well joined to Christ. We shall be driven by the gusts of passion. And storms of trouble. Or borne along on the surface of the slow stream of all changing time. Like thistle down on the water. If we are to be stable. It must be because we are fastened to something outside of ourselves that is stable. Just as they have to lash a man to the mast or other fixed things on deck. If he is not to be washed overboard in the gale. If we are lashed to the unchangeable Christ by the cords of love and grace and faith. We too shall in our degree be steadfast. You want to be resolved to find something stable? Trust your life to this grace of Christ, which redeems and restores and resolves and settles all things. When everything else gives way, the grace of God does not. It inspires a continuous exploration of its power. That's what that word there means. If you go to verse 23, if we continue, it means to stay with, to persist or persevere in. Therefore, it discharged the Colossians and to us as well. Persevere in your faith in this grace. That's your lifeline. It's what saved you. It's what carries you home, as the song says. The life of the Christian, the life of every disciple is a life of grace all the way down. This wasn't in my notes, but I was just reminded of it. Uh, I always, we often think of the Christian life. There's a prevailing picture of it. Perhaps in your minds or that you've been familiar with this picture of the life of the Christian being one of like a mountain climb. Imagine a big mountain surrounded by this fence. Faith and grace is what opens the gate to that fence. And now we are freed to climb up this mountain. Again, that's a a sort of a false view of what this gospel is. Because that would require all of the efforts of the climb to be on your shoulders and on your exertion and your abilities. I, I actually like to use a different picture. A totally different picture to imagine the Christian life. It's not a mountain climb. It's a cave dive. Spelunking is what the technical term, I guess, is. You go in a cave and you dive deeper into it. So when you're talking about the grace of God, you can talk about it forever. 
Because there's a, a million and a multitude of undiscovered caverns of grace in which the God of all grace can cover us and restore us and rescue us and redeem us. And forever, for all eternity, we will be exploring this wonderful grace of God. Which rescues aliens and enemies and makes them sons and daughters. Regardless of what their lives look like. This grace is powerful enough to save and redeem and cleanse. That's why in every way. The life of a disciple is a life of grace from beginning to end. All the way. All the way down. Let us pray.